Hello, fools. Hello. When the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast started 37 years ago in 2015, Chris, I'm pretty sure I wasn't thinking I'd do it as long as I did. And then podcasts went away pretty much altogether, so so it didn't make much sense to do them. It was kind of a bummer, too, because uh, at one point, Motley Fool Money was the second most popular nonfiction English language podcast. So, you know, there was that. But why are we back? Well, it's a good question. But I think, Chris, it's because people wanted to hear one last one from us. And so I was thinking the mailbag format, always popular, gave us an opportunity to answer your questions, dear listeners, speak to people's mindsets where they are in the world today. Of course, it would have been impossible to know or predict what life would be like here in 2052. And there are still some people complaining about it. (laughs) Understandably. But with optimism at its highest point in human history, so much innovation and growth we've witnessed together, nothing's ever going to be perfect. But Kevin Kelly's Protopia. Do you remember Kevin, founder of Wired Magazine? Kevin was right. Infinitesimal gains in kindness, technology, cooperation, care for our planet. The list goes on. These add up. Protopia is a thing. And you know what else is? Your health. Because you've taken pretty good care of yourself, my friend. 85 looks good on you, sir. Uh, And you as well. I'll just speak for myself. A lot of coffee. That'll do the trick. (laughs) Look, I know this is an audio format, but I mean, I kind of feel like we should do a selfie right now. Is that the iPhone 43? It is the 43. Should we use it? I've got the 42, so... You know, I, I upgraded. Slightly better camera. So thank you for joining us this week. We came back to these old school microphones to do an hour or so in an old media format called podcasts, which we used to do because in the year 2052, we wanted to speak to fools for perhaps one last time. Reflect together on, well, it's been quite a year, the year the market skyrocketed. We have guest stars aplenty. But most of all, we're glad to have you on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Chris Hill, David Gardner, we're both so delighted. First of all, Chris, to be together. It's great to see you again, my friend. As I said at the top, you're looking good at 85. Thank you. I'm reminded of the old adage, you know, it's great to be here, but at my age, it's great to be anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think the reason we thought we should do this podcast this week, many people are not going to remember this, but years ago, we did a podcast called The Day the Market Crashed. You know, I still get notes about it. I still get messages about this coming in from different places. You remember this, Chris? This is a long Absolutely. time ago. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You, yeah, There's you, plenty I forget, there. but I remember the day the market crashed. So the truth is, for the whippersnappers among us, that day the market did not crash. But Chris and I, we were in our mid-50s back then. It was the early 20s. We basically said we should do a podcast one week and just simulate the market crash. Some people may remember the War of the Worlds radio broadcast from the 20th century in which a famous actor at the time, Orson Welles, simulated our world being attacked by aliens. It sounded real to people over the radio. And Chris, you and I talked about that 
30 years ago. We said we should do that for the stock market. We should help listeners, help Motley Fool members process what it feels like and sounds like for the market to crash one day. And so we made it all up. We made it all up. And uh, I remember one of the things that uh, we tried to do, and I think we did a good job of, is uh, sort of replicating the frenzy. Because, you know, look, we've been investing in the stock market for so many decades, David. And that's one of those things that really has never changed. That, you know, when the market crashes when or just has a, a bad day or a bad week, it all kind of feels bad and it all feels like the financial world is going to end. And of course, we know now what we knew then, which is over time, the market goes up. But on any given day with the right set of circumstances, uh, yeah, it can be a really bad day and it feels painful. And that's exactly why we did that way back when. But we thought, you know, obviously we're not active that much anymore. Uh, Podcasts are no longer a thing, but we thought, why not come back and do one more that might kind of be the opposite, that might be reminding everybody hearing us right now that the market goes up over time. As you just said, Chris, things are good. It's worth getting on that train. It's a roller coaster sometimes, so you got to be ready to go up and down, but it's really worth it. I mean, the Dow trades in six digits today. I, I, 477,000, just rounding right now. That's that's where the Dow is. You know, the the median market cap of the S&P 500 today is 280 billion dollars. Those numbers don't just appear overnight. You roll up into those numbers over time. Great entrepreneurs come up with great ideas. They eventually get capital and go public. And if they survive and thrive, they probably end up in the S&P 500 here in 2052. I don't check this math that often, but it's interesting to see the median market cap is $280 billion. But wow, yeah, Dow 477,000. How many people were fretting about the Dow back when it was, I don't know, a thousand a long time ago, or even 50,000. And to think where we are today is important. One other fun stat there are five companies today that have all returned over 20% annualized for the past 30 years. Those five companies are the five $50 trillion market cap companies. So I think a lot of people have a hard time thinking forward and looking into the future because they see the old numbers of the past. But that's where we are today. And I wish everybody way back then would know, would do the math, see compounding, and see how the markets play out. And so now with the remove, with several more decades behind us, we're able to remind especially younger listeners right now of the great benefit of thinking and acting over the only term that counts, Chris, which is the long term. So the day the market crashed, we did that in, I think it was 2020. Here we are in 2052. We finally got around to doing a sequel. It's the year the market skyrocketed. Chris, how are you spending your time these days? Uh, you know, uh, I think back to a uh, guy we worked with for years at The Motley Fool, Robert Brokamp, um, who was an uh, expert in retirement. Bro. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I took Bro's advice, which was uh, to not fully retire and just sort of like ease into semi-retirement. And that's what I've been fortunate enough to, to do for decades now. And, um, uh, and like you, uh, spending time with the grandkids because there's, there's, uh, it, it's amazing being a parent, but, uh, being a grandparent, boy, the fun, the fun level 
of being a grandparent is unmatched. I remember you saying a long time ago, I think it was on one of your old podcasts, Chris, but I remember you saying that you at that time in middle age, you hadn't understood how much fun it would be to have your daughter, your adult daughter, driving you around one day for errands, just sitting in the car as your adult daughter drives you around, just watch her do the errands. And I remember you saying, and that almost sounded like early retirement right there to me, but what you say is true. It's a cliche, but cliches are often cliches because they're true. Grandchildren are pure joy. So I'm so glad to hear that you are making that time. And you know, because we've invested and we've invested successfully, I also find myself spending so much time with family, but a lot of it is setting up the legacy because when you make the money over time, you want to do right by it. You want to make sure it does good for the world, that it helps the kids, it, it, it helps the world. So, But to do that and do that with intention, well, that's kind of become a little bit of an obsession for me these days. So yeah, uh, of course, I remain a lifelong fool active with the foundation and the company. So excited about where we are. But you know what? Enough with all that. Let's set the chit chat aside now. You and I discussed this. We wanted to do this as a mailbag format. So for anybody who remembers our podcast from 30 years ago, you'll remember that on a monthly basis, we would take in messages from listeners and we would respond to them. And that's exactly, I thought, Chris, how we should do it this time for this one special podcast. So it's a mailbag. Particularly coming off the incredible year of 2051, uh, hence the title of this episode. Yeah, the year the market skyrocketed. We're going to talk about that. In fact, at least one of these mailbag items speaks to that. You know, let me say, I am delighted. You mentioned this at the top, Chris. We have managed to attract some of our favorite fools from years gone by. So we have guest stars aplenty, I think you said at the top, and that is what's ahead. But the first mailbag item of the seven that we have for this one-of-a-kind episode, the first one is a simple market question for you and me. So let's let's get this thing cranked up, Chris. Now, I will mention, I you know this, but a lot of our listeners won't. I recently had an experimental eyesight implant, which I have to say, first of all, I highly recommend. It, it's amazing. It's enabled me to see all kinds of things I could never have seen before. And so I think a lot of people obviously are thinking about augmentations. You have friends and family who've done it. For me, kind of made sense at my age, 85 years old, eyesight. It's really important, but I had no idea of the sixth sense capability that I've been given. But the irony, Chris, is I can't really read that well anymore. So I, I'm just going to ask, if would, would you read the mailbag items this episode? It would be my pleasure. Let's go for it, Chris. Rule breaker mailbag item number one. From Kendar Dolan. Hello, fools. Great to see you guys back in the saddle again. Global markets have had quite a run the last eight years, and I'm very grateful I finally got the kids' higher learning paid off and could save some money and put it into Rule Breaker stocks. Now, you may think this is a silly question, but after the run we've seen from the stock market, isn't the easy money all made by now? Should I really be putting new money into this market? Oh, David, I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> Well, I, it, it's a timeless question, right? And I think that's the reason. I mean, how many times – you've made jokes about this over the years, Chris. You know, the easy money, hasn't it already been made? I always I, – I, what is that easy money that I'm always wondering people say has already been made? I always wondered that too. <laughs> no one knows. But it was – one thing's for sure about it, Chris. It's always already been made, and it was easy. So, yeah, 
Obviously, Kendar is is reflecting on the strong run the markets have had in recent years. I mean, we've seen this time and time again over the course of our investing lives in our mid-80s now. I think, Chris, you and I have probably experienced this five or six times, this kind of strong market. And I would say, you know, to be empathetic for anybody who's just starting now, it's hard. It's hard to buy into the face of market highs and the kind of run that we've lived through. But I think we've been saying this since we started The Motley Fool in 1993. First of all, Chris, the long game is the only game to play. And to me, if you're going to play the game, that means you're investing every two weeks. Sometimes you'll realize in retrospect that the market was really high then. And you kind of wish in retrospect you hadn't bought that stock then. But if you keep buying, if the market drops, uh, all of a sudden, you'll find it doesn't feel good, but you'll find you're getting great prices for stocks that two-week period. But I think the, the key here is dollar cost averaging, right, Chris? Persistence. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, maybe it's easier to say now when we're in our mid-80s, but we were always saying this. It was always the case that the long game was the game to play. Uh, the trader's game, the short-term game, it's just exhausting. It's exhausting to think about. It is. And, you know, beyond that, I, maybe there's just two quick other thoughts for Kendar and everybody else listening. Second, you know, we're investing in businesses. So we're not, we're not guessing zigs and zags on stock market charts. We're not using AI algorithms. I often forget the ticker symbols these days of the companies that I'm buying, but I don't really care too much about ticker symbols, right? Because it's the real businesses. And that, that, that for me, the mistakes I've made in my life are when I was investing in things that weren't real, that weren't real solutions or didn't turn out to be. And I don't always kick myself about that because I thought, I thought that might be the new technology, the new trend. I thought, and so I tried, and sometimes I'm going to be wrong. But in every case, I always knew I was investing in a business, a business with a balance sheet, Chris Hill, a business with real employees, and I hope real products and solutions. Otherwise, you're probably not going to get my money. So, Kendar, you know, thought number two for you, we invest in businesses. We invest in businesses, and we invest in businesses with an eye towards the future because uh, as nostalgic as we get in our mid-80s, it's all about the future. And uh, you have to look at a business and think, is this business going where the world is going? Yeah. And Kendar, I don't know how old you are, but here, here, Chris and I are 85 today. It's easy to think back and say, you know, I wish you could rewind the clock. You know, 30 years ago, we were in our prime, 55. If you're 55 listening to me right now, you're probably thinking 30 years ago, I was 25. I could have done anything from that point forward. So it's very natural to look backward. And that's why it's so capital F foolish to look forward. Everybody else has their heads in the sand. They're worried about where the market's trading this week or the stock they just bought two weeks ago, whether the market was high or not. It always hurts to lose money when you lose money in the short term. But if you're doing what Chris and I are doing and everybody here at our company, The Motley Fool, you're you're thinking about the future and you're investing for that future. And to your earlier point, Chris, you're playing the long game. The long game is the only game to play. So, Kendar, I realize in a lot of ways, I feel like I could have been saying this on any given communication, essays I've written, podcasts. Chris and I have done media together. How many books did I write with my brother, Tom? 
all of these messages kind of crystallize down to those three cardinal points. The long game is the only game to play. Invest in real businesses with beautiful prospects. And number three, think about the future. That's where I try to live. Live backward from the future. Invest for the future. That's all that really counts when you buy your stock, right? All that matters is what happens next. All right. Rule breaker mailbag item number two. All right. Next message. Hi, David. Thank you for coming back to do one more podcast. It's amazing anyone is still doing podcasts. Anyway, getting you and Chris Hill back in front of the microphone is special. Is this the last time? I'm just going to say parenthetically, yeah, it probably is. But, you know, who knows? Uh, It reminds me of that old novel, Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry, where you guys are making one last ride, though I hope it ends better. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I never, I never read Lonesome Dove, but now I'm guessing the ending's pretty dark. All right, let's keep going with the message. I got started investing right after the crash of 2029. I had a few Earth dollars saved and thought, I'm done with crypto. It's time to put my net worth into actual corporations, creating real solutions and new possibilities for the unmeta world. It was Bago, really. Anyway, it's been an amazing 20 years filled with signature winners like 3Meta, off-world destinations, and Crocs, though I should have held on to my Mercado Libre. Against those, even my worst losers, and then he adds parenthetically, I lost faith in Star Samurai even before your team did. They never held a candle against those three 100 baggers. I'm curious whether you guys still think the market would rise 8 to 10% a year going forward. Also, do you think President Bieber's potential re-election is good or bad for stocks? Signed, Lewis. Oh, I mean, you know, it's it, we love the messages, David, but uh, you know, Lewis should know we don't we don't factor politics into these things. But you know what? Do you, do you want to bring in our our special guest? Yeah, you know, we thought about it. And we thought, who can speak to? Um, I would say not just the last year, last ten years, but how about our lifetimes? Who, who's been there as an author and thinker for finance, money, and the markets? Our friend Morgan Housel. And Morgan, it's, it's a delight to have you back. I I know that you are now pretty comfortably retired yourself. Uh, your your fame precedes you, and it's a delight to have you back to the show. And Lewis's comments, you know, Morgan, is the market gonna keep going up? Well, David, it's good to be here. You and I have been working together for forty five years now. It's great that we can still do this together. I think to those comments, we have to look at what's happened throughout all of history. And if you look at a very long period of history, going back over a century, you'll see that the market has gone up 8 to 10% per year. But that doesn't mean anything close to it going up 8 to 10% every year. You have periods of sometimes 10 or even 20 years when it declines. And you have negative returns for 20 years. That, of course, happened during the Great Depression. It happened during the 1970s. It happened during the Great Crash of 2029, of course. And I think that will keep happening. I think it's just in the nature of markets to go through periods of a big boom and then a big washout bust. Now, what was very different about the crash of 2029 is that, David, in the, during the Great Depression, during the 1920s, 5% of Americans own stocks. Just 5%. Because of Robinhood and a bunch of other companies that brought so many investors into the market, during the crash of 2029, 70% of Americans owned stocks. And then when the market fell 70%, that had such a big societal impact that really washed over the economy and did a lot of damage to psyches in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. But the crash itself, 
was very, really matched up to, to historical norms. And I think what's really interesting about it is that we spent so much time as investors over the last 40 years saying that what happened during the Great Depression and the inflation in the 1970s and those big events could not happen now, that they would not happen in a modern economy when we have so much technology and information and intelligence. And we just fooled ourselves into believing that. And the nature of markets of going through big booms and busts will always be with us. So to answer your question, I think the answer is yes. The market still will keep going up at 8 or 9% per year over the long term. And by long term, I mean 10, 20, 30 years. But we're always going to have long periods of pain. And sometimes when I say long periods, it's not one year. That's 10 or 20 years. You know, Morgan, uh, you're someone who studies history. And I'm, I'm curious, when you think about the impact that economic events make on people, sometimes on generations. I mean, you talk about uh, the crash of 2029. Um, does it happen in smaller ways? I think back to like, uh, I don't remember the exact year. I want to say it was like 2012, 2011, something like that. There, there was a stretch there with uh, all we talked about for three months was Greece. And, and is Greece going to leave the European Union? You know, more recently, there was the whole thing with Scotland. Like, did those things also affect investors in the same way that like uh, uh, the crash of 2029 would? I think it does, but it affects everyone differently. Because if you are a young new investor, experience the market turmoil from what's going on in Scotland, that's going to affect you very differently than if you are uh, like us who are in our 80s right now, our late 80s, of course. And, um, and we experienced a very different path of history during life. We were, of course, alive during September 11th and the financial crisis of 2008 and all these other events that, that really marked us psychologically for the rest of our lives. I always say wounds heal, but scars last. And that's true for how we experience these historical events. You can recover from a great financial crisis. You can recover from the crash of 2029, but it's still going to mark you psychologically for the rest of your life. And I think the problem with investors is that it's not that they don't learn from their experiences, it's that they learn a too precise lesson from what happened. So during the financial crisis of 2008, the lesson that people learned was don't buy subprime mortgages, don't invest in highly levered banks. That was the really precise lesson that they learned, when actually the lesson that they should have learned was something about market volatility and a broader risk. Like Rather than taking the really precise lesson, they should have learned something much broader. So I think whenever we go through one of these crises, like what's going on in Scotland, I think we are likely to learn a too precise lesson about what we should do as investors, when usually there's two takeaways that you should learn from these big historical hiccups. One is that all of these events were surprising. Nobody saw them coming before they actually happened. And that would be so the case true. going in the future. And then the other thing is just all that matters in investing. And I, I use that word intentionally. All that matters in investing is that you can endure volatility, that you can endure uncertainty. And rather than thinking you can avoid it, that you can just absorb it over a long period of time. That's the lesson from all of these surprises. And there always will be surprises. Obviously, 2037, we think back to the meteor and the amazing efforts that scientists put in to shoot that thing out of the skies. Now, we remember what happened in the market. I mean, it doesn't feel great when you have impending doom headed your way. It was like something, it's like a bad Michael Bay movie, but for real. So I, I totally agree with you there, Morgan. While we have you, I want to ask you, obviously to see the success uh, of your books over time, for you to be one of the top three best-selling authors in the world today. Um, 
I want to go back to your first book, though. I'm still thinking about the psychology of money. And to me, for schools finally to have recognized in the 40s that this should be read by all the kids. Like, you can't graduate at any level of schooling without understanding money better, that we finally got that. I want to, first of all, thank you for that. But I want to ask you, for it to be required reading right now in 52 of the 53 U.S. states, but the one state, Morgan, ironically, that has not required psychology of money at grade school level, your home state of California, why? I gave a really bad talk in California in 2032, and I just bombed it. And I was ostracized from the entire state. Uh, and then Chris Hill came and did a live podcast in 2023, I, I think. And it was the same thing. I think he may have been sick. He may have had too much to drink that day, but it just it just went over terribly. So we've been bombed out. The good news about it being in all the other uh, 50, 52 states is that they're doing the audio book of Psychology of Money that, of course, is done by Chris Hill. We're now at 47 million copies sold worldwide. So that's, that's the good news. You get my writing, but it's delivered in Chris Hill's wonderful voice. Well, and, and Canada, obviously, as the most recent inductee into the union, for it already to have been reading the psychology of money, um, I, I think it was required back in the 20s in Canada. For you, that has to be things have come full circle. It feels pretty cool. Here's what's interesting about books like that. The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham was first written in the 1930s. And as recently as the 2020s, it was still selling 100,000 copies per year. And what's interesting about it is that there is a lot in that book that is totally dated, that is not relevant at all to a modern stock market. It's just completely outdated. But there's also some nuggets in there that are timeless, and that's why it kept selling. So I think if you can, and there's stuff about that in the psychology of money that is totally dated in 2052. That makes no sense given the modern economy, given the stock market. And if I were going to rewrite that book today in 2052, I would cut half of what is in there, both because I learned through experience that what I thought when I wrote that book in 2019, I now realize it's wrong. And also because the economy and the stock market has evolved over time to make a lot of it irrelevant. But I do think that there are bits and pieces of this book that are timeless that will still be with us for a long period of time. Well, very evidently, and school children around the country today are, are experiencing it and are required by eighth grade to answer the right questions about it. And Morgan, could you have known back then what would happen to crypto? Well, I don't think anyone could have seen what was happening to crypto. It's completely surprised everyone with what happened in the biggest way. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Uh, it's just been a ridiculous thing to watch what's happened over the last 20 years. No one could have seen it coming. And if you go back to the early 2020s, and you look at what people were predicting, both the bulls and the bears, no one got it right. What actually, what actually happened with crypto surprised everybody. Morgan, uh, we know you're headed off world. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. This has been fun. Thanks, guys. Hopefully we can do this for our 100th birthday in another 10 or 15 years. Yeah, let's keep it going. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number three. Hey, fools, if my math is right, David and Chris haven't worked for years, so you two probably don't care that much about how work works today or will tomorrow, but I care. I'm 27 years old, and my grandfather was a fool who left me two great gifts. The first was some seriously appreciated stock, which was a really big gift for me, though not so big that I'm not still in the workforce today, 
and thinking about tomorrow. And Pop Pop's other gift to me, and I'm not as clear on the value of this one, was that he told me to listen to you guys, to always hear the fools out on what they have to say, especially about the future. So even if you guys are now older than Pop Pop when he died, wow, can I just pause there? I mean, David, that, all right, let's keep going. I'm just email. glad to be 85, Chris. Thank you. I, same. Uh, even if you guys are now older than Pop-Up was when he died, I wanted to ask you about work. Maybe you could get Aaron Bush or some other successful entrepreneur of today who's winning in the workplace, who's constantly thinking about this stuff. Can he help me think about the future of work? Thank you. Signed, Jake Cacello. Well, Jake, very happy to say that Aaron Bush is with us this week. It's great to see you, Aaron. You're looking good, by the way. You're basically the same age I was when I started this podcast back in the day. And Well, Jake's asking a pretty simple question, right? What's the future of work? Well, before Chris and I turn this over to you, Aaron, I want to say first that in my lifetime anyway, there have really been, I would say, two huge revolutions in work and how work happens. The first was back in the 20s and the pandemic. Remember, what was it called? Skype? Face, face something? Zoom was one. <laughs> right, of course, Zoom. And that began a big shift. That, that, I would say, was the first revolution. But, Aaron, the second revolution in the workplace came some years later, and it was... Well, first of all, thanks for having me on here. I'm feeling older and wiser than, than I did 30 years ago. So it's great Let's to be here. Let's hope so. Um, but yeah, I mean, the second revolution, I'll get to that in one moment. But I think, you know, one quick thing to note is that these revolutions, they they take quite a while to play out. And so you mentioned Zoom, you know, all of us staring at our computer screens every day for a few years there, um, talking to each other. That definitely that definitely was the tip of the spear of the first revolution, but it definitely wasn't the whole thing. And so really, the 20s and 30s, that was really about answering not only what does it mean to be a digital native worker, but what does it mean to be a digital native organization? And so, you know, lots of companies were trying to figure out what that means for themselves. Not all companies figured it out, by the way. And a lot of the, the legacy businesses of the time kind of struggled to adapt. But we kind of moved into a world where people could work from anywhere, work on anything. And it was just a much more flexible world. But the second revolution started seven, eight years ago, but uh, is accelerating today is the leveraging of AI in the workplace. And people have been talking about this forever, guys. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid and people were talking about, you know, AI is going to take over the world. And we're still not at the place where, you know, we have AI best friends and everything. Yeah. And, and well, and I'll just add, I mean, to think that we're still not doing autonomous driving in any way, shape or form at, at scale. I, I don't think people would have thought that years and years ago. So I hear you there and keep going. Well, yeah. So on one hand, it's pretty remarkable how long some of these incredibly ambitious um, technologies take to, to catch on. But we're finally at the point where we have actually helpful AI systems embedded into you know most of the software platforms that we use every day. These aren't the sentient AIs, but these are flexible, creative tools that can get certain tasks done at lightning speed compared to the past. And there are a ton of companies that specialize in different domains here. But for example, like I just told one AI system to make a 15-minute presentation about my company's 
finances and it came back with perfectly aggregated and beautiful imagery. And so wow. that happened in 10 seconds versus, you know, that would have taken me like a week to figure out many years ago. And one of my, my coworkers, she told another AI system to compile a, a documentary based on our past two years of virtual essays. And it gave five options, again, like within just a few minutes, which is something that would have taken months to, to did do Did you go before. with rom-com? Which one did you select? Oh, yeah, we went with the spicy one, of course. I mean, really, just like, it's incredible to see the rise of these smarter, used to be called no-code software that's really unlocked both insane efficiencies, but really, not only can anyone now work for most any organization for most anywhere in the world, but now everyone has these incredible and efficient creation tools at their fingertips that people a few decades ago couldn't quite fathom. Aaron, let me go back to something you said there. When you know, when you talk about software, but you, you also reference sort of like sentient AI because uh, one thing we continue to hear, you know, you think about the global uh, restaurant brands that are, you know, everybody sees every day. Uh, Starbucks, McDonald's, Magic Freddy, all of them, uh, they're all trying to make the sort of the sentient work like, hey, if we, if we have robots uh, flipping burgers, then we don't need people to do it. But um, it, it sounds like from what you're saying, th that's still pretty far off for them. Well, I mean, in a lot of cases, it's still happening. And again, what we saw in crypto over the past few decades, I mean, anything is possible. I mean, wow, right? Um, but in the same way that a few decades ago, a lot of the jobs that people were doing couldn't have been envisioned at the time. Today, a lot of the jobs that are being done today couldn't have been envisioned 20 years ago. I mean, we have all these virtual world economists. People are starting to want to be terraforming scientists as we you know figure out how to take big next steps as humanity. Um, and so, I mean, I think, you know, as we, we look into the future, automation efficiency in the same way that's existed since the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago, we're going to continue to see big steps there. And it's a mix of big leaps at certain times with the onboarding of new technology, but also it's just a steady, ongoing change of the way that people work and the kinds of jobs that they have. It's such a true point from history. Yeah, in every era, I think we think that the jobs of for our kids will be what our grandparents did, right? I mean, just think about farming. Over the course of history, Gramps was a farmer. I'm a farmer. My daughter will be a farmer. But I mean, there are still farms. Don't get us wrong. But I mean, jobs are constantly changing. Obviously, what robotics has done. But I mean, Chris, could you ever imagine how many people would be walking around these days with morph agent on their business card? I mean, morph agents, I could never have dreamed that. I never could have imagined that. So on one hand, like all of this change is incredible, right? But with every technology that ever emerges, there are quirks to work out and things aren't always perfect. Last week, for example, I heard about this guy who, again, using these AI systems, made deep fakes of himself for virtual meetings. And the crazy thing was he ended up getting hired in 20 places before some bug and his system hit, and all twenty deep fakes went to the same meeting and confused everyone, and it kind of set the you know the news ablaze. And so, I mean, look, as with anything, it's going to take time to figure this technology out. There's always going to be mass outbursts about what's right or wrong or fair or where things are going. But really, just bottom line, it's really incredible to see how AI has improved, even though it's not exactly where people thought it would go. In the same way, you know. 
we still don't have flying cars, right? Even though that's kind of the example people used a long time ago. But it's still incredible to see how AI has improved and be put in environments where it's super easy to customize and use and just be used in remarkable ways. Thank you, Aaron Bush. Now, Jake is really, he's asking about the future of work from here. I mean, I realize it's its helpful to reflect back on a lot of what's happened and a lot we're, we're skipping. I mean, just think about genomics. I went in for a treatment yesterday and I can just flat out see new things today in a way that I couldn't have dreamed 50 years ago, let alone 10 years ago. So there's a lot we're skipping. But Aaron, thinking forward from here, any thoughts about the future of work to Jake's question? The guy's 27 years old today. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think similar like to the past, like in the, the emergence of the internet and the emergence of like original software tools, it gave entrepreneurs and extremely valuable contributors and companies the means to build new stuff and scale it out. And a lot of that same pattern exists today. Obviously, the tools are different. The systems are completely different. The building blocks are working at a whole new level of efficiency and creativity. But if I were to start a company today or trying to figure out how to add the most value today to the businesses that I work for, I would be thinking about how can I use all of these new systems together in new ways to unlock creativity at a greater scale and speed than we've seen in the past. And so, you know, whether that's, again, virtual worlds, new forms of entertainment, new learning tools for kids, which are always needed, et cetera, there's plenty of opportunity. And the same way that lots of the interesting jobs of today didn't exist in the past, it's going to be the same way in the future. And it's going to be the people who leverage the building blocks of today to create something new that are, are going to see tremendous success. And of course, like that's on the digital sphere. We, you know, we still operate in a physical world and none of that's going to go um, away either. And so, you know, there still is tremendous advances we can make in manufacturing. David, you were talking about genomics and life sciences and space technologies. There's there's so many industries that can use people who are thinking about using all of these new tools to unlock creative upside. And I mean, how many people were thinking when we started this podcast, what was it, 2015, how many people were thinking about Greenland and just what Greenland would become? And you just think about how real estate was redistributed. And you think about the self-organizing political climate today in Greenland. Yeah, it's an, it's incredible. My, my dad, again, he was using some of these systems the other day to create a, a board game about the battle for Scotland. And, you know, Greenland is a prime contributor in, you know, this new world environment that who would have thought what they've been able to unlock there, that it would be such an important part of the world these days it's incredible what yeah, can guys change. was was greenland even on risk remember risk the board game was greenland even like a thing like tell people were blind to greenland you just never really know how things are going to play out well aaron bush thank you once again for your insights congratulations on your success thank you too david i still think i talk too much about board games and chris i think we need to keep the trains moving let's go to rule breaker mailbag item number four from Ipolita S., who writes, Hi, David and Chris, and shout out to Tom Gardner, too, one of the best CEOs in these 53 states. Ah, Very nice. So she writes, One thing I've always appreciated about The Motley Fool is that you guys have a deep bench. People like Morgan Housel started at The Fool, the Friedman Twins, and Gina Stoops, hashtag Stoops to Conquer. Betcha. And let's not forget the all Euro AIs plus the ubiquitous green morph agents. The list goes on. 
As a longtime fool, I'm so grateful for your company's ability always to come up with next-gen talent. But my favorite has always been Emily Flippin, in part because she was one of the early female fools I first heard on the final years of podcasts when I was a kid. My mother used to listen to them as she ran, and my sisters and I would Bluetooth into her phone and run alongside her and listen as well. These days, with Web 5.5, Emily is everywhere, but I'll always treasure the 30-something Emily because I kind of grew up with her. What are a few lessons Emily has learned about business and investing that she did not know when she first started out? Also, does she have any views on whether Chanka will be legalized? David, what a great message, and it gives us the chance to visit with one of our all-time favorite fools, Emily Flippin. So good to see you. Thanks so much for having me here. And I have to say, um, that is some impressive company I am considered alongside there, right? Stoops, Housel, the Morph Agents. I mean, really an entire lineup there. So flattered to be here on the show and even more flattered by Ibelita's question. Emily, it's great to see you. And, you know, how many lessons have we all learned over the last few decades? But obviously, Ibelita, in particular, zeroing in on business and investing lessons. And Chris, I think we should start start there. Emily, what's, what's a business lesson that you've learned in the last 30 years that you didn't know 30 years ago? Well, there genuinely are so many, as you just mentioned, it's hard to narrow down. And, and to be clear, even though I'm coming up on my 60th year here, I'm still learning and growing as an investor, as a businesswoman, as I hope we all are. But one of the things that comes first to mind is really the importance of having a clear vision for the future of businesses and thus your investments. I, I knew this was a challenge for me as an investor early on. Uh, I was, and to an extent, still am a skeptic on businesses that have a high level of innovation, but face these really large challenges with expansion. And there are times, I think, when skepticism pays off, which gives you that false sense of confidence, right? Like with autonomous vehicles or Twitter. I mean, but that skepticism, it shielded me from bad investments, but I think it did more harm than good because I never got behind some of the most innovative businesses of my lifetime. Apple is an easy example, but also AI, right? Those black box businesses that I was so slow to the punch. So I think sometimes not having that clear vision just holds you back as an investor more than it helps you. Emily, you mentioned Twitter. Obviously, a lot of us look back with some regret, some sadness, what do you think was at the heart of Twitter's failure? Well, just an inability to see what the future of connection would look like. And when I say that, I mean the way that we communicate today, right? Think about what I'm doing right now. We're recording a podcast, say an outdated form of communication here. <laughs> um, but I'm sitting here and I'm recording this podcast on my SmartCast by a meeting set up by my artificient. So there are just so many ways that technology buries itself into our life today that I think Twitter was so behind the times on adopting to that it just decreased in relevancy. In fact, when I look at all of the businesses today that have more than $10 trillion in market cap, they're using real forms of AI and businesses like Twitter, mm. and not to keep it limited only to Twitter, but so many of these, I guess, businesses that have kind of failed over the course of my life were just really slow to adapt to that change. Emily, investing's always been about the future, um, even though as human beings, we sometimes sort of get uh, 
uh, tied to uh, nostalgia and businesses of the past, um, and that often doesn't work out for us as investors. Uh, it's about the future. Uh, to Ipolita's second question, uh, any views on Chanka? I, I mean, it's a question we hear a lot these days, the potential legalization, uh, the ripple effects for different industries. What are your views? As far as Chanka is concerned, I think I'm skeptical, but I'm hopeful about legalization. I have to say, uh, with Bieber standing for re-election, it was my hope that Chanka would become a talking point for politicians, which would maybe make it a more popular issue headed into this election season. But as we all know, there are just frankly more important things that I think voters want answered, right? The earth dollar devaluation, global warming, overpopulation, lots of things that are just more important to Chanka. I will say, again, I am hopeful. I think there are use cases. But if you look at actually the consumption trends, an area where Netflix has already rolled out its sleep solutions, Chanka has dropped over three times in consumption in those areas. So I wonder if it's just not as important to consumers or voters as it once was. Boy, I can't imagine the Chanka heads like to hear that too much. But Emily, you've obviously been, um, first of all, you've been very articulate. Uh, we, we remember decades past, other illegal drugs. Well, they started illegal. Many were legalized. What do you think in particular is holding Chanka back? What are the reservations at this point? I mean, I think we've seen the science. Yes, we have. However, I think what we're doing right now is trying to balance the demand with the supply. And I think that's what's holding the business back more so than things like legalization or regulations. So if you actually look at where Chonk is being produced in states like Canada, where it's being produced so widely, then exported across state lines, Businesses right now are doing a poor job of predicting what demand in the states that they're exporting to will look like. And because we don't have that legalization, it is a state level issue. And the supply and demand imbalances are so individual state to state that we're seeing oversupply in some areas, which is pushing the price down and a poor ability to kind of predict those consumption trends. I think it can work out long term. That's, again, why I say I'm hopeful about the future for this industry. But I have to say, I think leadership in a lot of these businesses, as well as regulators, uh, haven't done a great job in managing the supply and the trade for this product. I would say you've spoken pretty well to Ipolita's question. I mean, specifically, I, I'm thinking again about the clear vision and, and business. Let's go a little bit more toward investing, though, one more time, Emily Flippin. So investing lessons. I mean, I'm in particular thinking about, do you remember the so-called metaverse? I do, I do. Yeah, so this was so much driving uh, a lot of investment. It wasn't just mentality, but investment. And obviously, some of it was so farsighted. Some of it was so on, but some of it was a complete uh, misuse of funds. And that's going to always happen, especially in a capital-rich world. That's the world we all want to live in, an abundant world where you can be wrong. But what did the VCs get wrong about the metaverse? Well, they weren't able, I think, looking back on how Metaverse has developed over time to differentiate the product that we have today versus just what was the internet, right? Back in, say, the 2020s. So when you're looking at the Metaverse today, I mean, what causes a person to spend their entire lives? That's what was missing with those VC firms, you know, three decades ago was the, the future thought there. So there was nothing about that first iteration of the Metaverse that made it so necessary and ubiquitous 
this as a part of people's life that it was unavoidable? And it's actually an interesting question because when I reflect on that first lesson, right, that inability for me to kind of see that clear vision for the future, I wrote off the metaverse entirely because I could not tell the difference between that and what existed today within, you know, like say Oculuses, right? So VR systems, the internet. To me at the time, it was no different. And as we know today, obviously that was not the case, but I didn't invest in the metaverse at all because of that initial skepticism. Some things change and some things stay the same. One thing I remember about you, I think this has been true your whole life, but disabuse me if I have this wrong, Emily. Am I right? You still have never seen a Spider-Man movie? I still have never seen a Spider-Man movie. I'm a cat person. What can I say? I I can totally respect that, but... I, for one, Chris, am excited about the coming fall release of Spider-Man Origins. And, Emily, I think this might finally be the one that pulls you out of your crib and into the viewing zones. Well, it would be a wonderful opportunity. I will say all of the targeted ads I'm seeing in my home devices are telling me that this has to be the first Spider-Man movie for me. So maybe (laughs) I'll see you out there, David, although maybe I'll hold out for another, I don't know, five decades. Emily, we know you have uh, the speech at the State House to give, so we will let you go in just a second. But uh, if you could, uh, and this is really in the spirit of Ibolita's first question, if you could give some sort of message to your younger self, whether it's about business or investing, uh, to sort of guide you in the future, what would it be? I would just say, keep an open mind and you don't know what you don't know. And it's kind of a negative, I guess, note to leave on, but I don't mean it that way. Um, As an investor, I had you know, almost two decades of investing experience before I experienced the Great Depression, right? And that spent a long time building me up as investor to break me down very quickly. And I throughout my career, thought that I knew how I would react to a scenario where I saw my portfolio in the stock market fall in the order of you know, 70%. But I didn't know how I would feel until I actually experienced myself. So just keep an open mind as you go through life. Um, I will, hopefully, for you know, the next years of my own life, as I, as I come up to you know, seeing y'all as investors, David and Chris. But I guess don't cry over spilt milk in the sense that don't beat yourself up for the things you have yet to learn. Well, Emily Flippin, it's been a little while. I'm delighted to reconnect with you again. Thanks so much for joining us back on this one special edition of Rule Breaker Investing, the podcast, whatever that is anymore. Thanks, Emily. Uh, Thanks for having me. This was such a nostalgic trip for me. All right. Well, whole new topic, Chris Hill, Rule Breaker mailbag item. Number five. From Joseph in Waltham, Massachusetts. How come the Motley Fool almost totally missed the promise of Greenland? This is not a political message. I'm not saying the warming we've seen was all human-induced, and I'm grateful for what science continues to give us in terms of the bevy of insights, which are more balanced than people would have thought, and eye-opening. And he adds parenthetically, our increasing ability to control the weather seems like something no one was talking about when I first joined The Motley Fool as a member. True dad. He goes on to write, but still, the undeniable heating of our planet seems like something you could have anticipated better, especially in your stock picking services. It's only because I'm a Million Acres member, shout out to Matt Argusinger and your all Euro AI bot, that I actually did finally start buying into Greenland. 
I realize Matt is probably more interested in his mountain communities these days, but I'm still curious whether he might come back on and talk some about his favorite Greenland REITs. So Matt, what did the Dane see and you saw that the rest of us missed? P.S. Does Matt think some of the planetary land sales are overhyped at this point, or is that an area for maybe a 10% allocation? Wow, a lot going on there. Well, first of all, let me just say, Matt Argusinger, great to see you again. It is great to see you, David, and great to see you, Chris. It's been it's been too long. So happy to be back on this podcast, which I didn't think existed anymore, but it's it's here. This is fantastic. You bet. And I will say, Joseph knew about it. Joseph, I know, Waltham, Massachusetts, I think that's where your alma mater is, right? Is this shout out to Brandeis? I was going to say, I think Joseph must be either a student or or professor at Brandeis because, yeah, Waltham, Massachusetts, one of the, Brandeis University, by the way, one of the few universities in the world that's still holding in-school teaching. I mean, as mm. we know, mo- most universities wow. went virtual decades ago. Uh, Brandeis has always been a bit traditional. Uh, I can't believe I graduated there 50 years ago this spring, uh, believe it or not. So, Are you uh, going to go back? I, I, you know, I, I haven't been back in a long time. I should go back. I mean, it probably won't look like anything like I remembered it as. Although, you know, some of the older buildings might still be there. So we'll see. Well, I'll say this, Matt. Clearly, Joseph is a pretty big fan. He obviously knows how you're spending your time. I'd love to get into that a little bit later, but... But Chris, what was the question? What was the first? He asked a lot of questions. Yeah. So what did the Danes see? Right. You saw that the rest of us missed. And, you know, it's a spot on point. A lot of us missed this one. Well, we did. We did. But I mean, let's, yeah, let's talk Greenland. I mean, it's what Americans sometimes uh, today refer to as the Florida of the North Atlantic for its many, of course, coastal beachside retreats and boardwalks. It's, It's a fantastic place if you guys haven't been. But it's not just about an amazing coastline or its world-famous hot springs. Uh, you know, Greenland's geothermal technology, of course, now powers all of Europe. It's, it's pretty remarkable. To Joseph's questions, uh, and, and thank you, Joseph, by the way, for being a member of Million Acres. Uh, it's, it's great great to have you along with us. Uh, I, even I was late to Greenland. I, I didn't really get started investing or interested in the, uh, in the island until about 2031. It was a couple of years after the great crash of 2021. Of course, we all lived through that. I will say there was... I feel like there was some infamous president of ours back in the teens that thought about annexing Greenland and making it part of the United States. Let's just say I'm glad Denmark held on to it. I think it's in much better hands. But uh, politics aside, however, Greenland was always to me one of those last frontiers on Earth. You know, while everyone was following Elon Musk to Mars and beyond back in the 20s, I I saw Greenland as this massive, you know, captivating, untouched landscape. You know, full of places to explore right here at home. And as the planet began to warm a little bit and, and the ice sadly melted away in many parts of Greenland, it kind of started to slowly reveal itself to the world. It was and, unbelievable. And it was. I mean, as, and as soon as it really started happening in earnest, David, I think I knew we were going to see a big surge in interest from, you know, energy companies, scientists, geologists, of course, but also real estate developers. Uh, and as I like to say in Million Acres, Joseph probably knows this, but real estate to me, it always follows people and money. And, and plenty of that started flowing to uh, Greenland's way a few decades ago. So uh, speaking of money, so here are my two favorite Greenland REITs, Joseph. Uh, the first one is Luxus Hospitality REIT, uh, L-U-K-S. Uh, Luxus, of course, is, is Danish for luxury. Um, it's the largest resort owner in Greenland. And, and of course, occupancy has really bounced back after the COVID-49 breakout we had a few years ago. So it's, it's great to see people back to those resorts. Uh, and then my second read is uh, it's it's Green Thumb Reit Grum G R U M. Uh, it's a collection of wind farms, geothermal plants, solar arrays. It's, it's actually one of the largest landowners and collections of renewable energy assets on the planet. 
Uh, you also get a nice dividend with that one, by the way. So there you go, Lux and Grum, my, uh, my two favorite REITs in Greenland. And then to Joseph's postscript question, Yes. Let's hold. Let's hold off there for a second. Okay. Because we're off. gonna go. We're gonna go to outer space in a sec. But, but let me just stick. I'm opening this up to both of you guys. It's obviously the Super Bowl time of year. It's amazing now the tournament that it's become. Such an international sport as well, and it's great finally to see a team from the Far East win it all. But what year was it when Greenland finally started to show up? Super Bowl ads like I mean there it was it's 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 like it's practically a continent it's one of the largest land bodies that's not recognized to be that on earth it was just sitting there on maps for years nobody thought about it until this started happening Matt but Chris Matt when did Greenland finally come to our popular awareness you know I I don't remember the exact year um I know it was in the 40s um, you think back to when we were much younger and, uh, you know, it wasn't unusual for there to be advertisements for uh, the home state of whatever uh, you know, had the Super Bowl. So, you know, California, Florida, um, Las Vegas, that kind of thing. Um, you know, when Norway uh, hosted the Super Bowl uh, back in, uh, I think it was like 42, 43 um, that's where we started to see, obviously, the promotions for Norway, uh, understandable, but uh, we started to see uh, Greenland really sort of pushing in, um, both in terms of sort of the metacast of the game, and then obviously, depending on, uh, you know, your home devices and your preferences and privacies, uh, you know, a lot of us, and I'm one of them, uh, we got those personalized messages uh, served up as well. Mm. Yeah, I think, Chris, if I remember, it was it was the year, you know, no one lived on Greenland for decades. And all of a sudden, it was, yeah, right, it was like in the late 30s, Greenland suddenly had a million people. It just it was just out of nowhere. You know, it stopped being kind of this outpost for scientists and geologists. And all of a sudden, you know, you had resort communities really blow up. And it was, yeah, it was right when it got about a million people in the late 30s. And then, of course, the migration just really, really surged and everyone was starting to buying second homes. And uh, yeah, but I think you're right. It was it was kind of in that mid 40s era where we where we saw that first uh Come, come to Greenland commercial, which was, was famous. Which was hilarious. Well, thank you for that, Matt Argusinger. And obviously, Joseph had more on his mind than just Greenland. Chris, there was something about planetary land sales. Yeah, and this is, you know, I... I you know, I, I know he threw it in as a PS, but to, to me, this is the more uh, this is the one I'm personally more excited about because um, I, I love thinking about investing in terms of allocation. So the idea of you know, and I think this is prudent of Joseph to think about you know planetary land sales, you know, small allocation, ten percent. Um, one, what do you think of that, Matt? And then two, you know, within that allocation, what would you recommend? Boy, yeah, it's. I definitely, I like the idea of keeping the allocation low, having a little bit of skin in the game. It's certainly not a, not a big bet because it's gotten a little overhyped. Yeah, I do have some big questions about those some of those planetary land sales. I mean, you know, hundred million dollars for a one acre plot on Mercury. I don't know. Have you guys ever been to Mercury? I mean, it's not exactly the no. most hospitable place. I mean, I know Mars feels like it's already in a bubble, and people are kind of looking into secondary and tertiary planets right now. Of course, they're now building those massive hover pads on Jupiter and Saturn on the gas planets, which I just think is unbelievable. Who wants to live in this gaseous atmosphere floating? But I know that's coming down the pike as well. Yeah, well, there's no way. I think we can also, I mean, mining rights included, there's no way that an acre of mercury is worth 100 million Earth dollars today. Funny fact, this is still true. I assume you guys know this, but the hottest planet in our solar system is actually the second planet. It's Venus. 
not Mercury, even though Mercury is sitting there tucked in right near our sun. Venus, because of its greenhouse atmosphere, traps heat and superheats. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm geeking out a little bit on space. But Chris, have you bought any off-planet real estate? Look, I had the one experience with the condos on Mars, and uh, it didn't really work out. You know, I'm I'm an investor. I'm optimistic by nature, but uh, uh, I've been burned once. Uh, I'm probably not going in, even at a small allocation. Matt, Joseph is asking, would you recommend a 10% allocation to this form of real estate? And, and if so, how much you allocate within that? Joseph, to me, the upside is is galaxy-sized, of course. We know that. But even 10% seems high to me. I, I think maybe even a 2 or 3% allocation. Keep your earthly real estate, uh, you know, a healthy 15 to 20% of your portfolio. Your solar system real estate, maybe in the 2 less, certainly less than 5%. I mean, when you can buy a luxury villa uh, in Greenland for a, a tenth of the price of a, uh, a one-acre plot in Mercury, that, that seems like the better bet to me. I, I don't have the vision to see what these one acre plots on places like Venus and Mercury and, and those condos in Mars are going to turn into. I mean, they're going to be wonderful place for humans to explore in the way future. Appreciate that. And, you know, so often we as humans can see what might happen. We see it well ahead of time. Then the hype cycle kicks in and things get overheated. I think that's where it is right now. I mean, I actually think Mars, not a bad investment today, even though it's premium price. Mercury, I think that was ridiculous. Matt, let me just ask you in closing, obviously, Joseph, uh, sounds like a big fan, mentioning some of your work and your life now in mountain communities. One thing I remember about you, Matt, is on, I think was was it on your honeymoon with your wife, Jean? You guys literally climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for your, your honeymoon. I think I have that right. But obviously, the transition, the evolution, what's happening today within mountain communities and what you're doing today, pretty remarkable. Could you just share a little bit? Uh, absolutely, David. Yes. Um, 2009, married my wife. So 43 years ago, upcoming, uh, we, we climbed uh, Kilimanjaro. Of course, back then, awesome. Kilimanjaro still had a glacier on top of it. It was still kind of snow-capped. Uh, that is, of course, not the case today, but it's still a wonderful place to, to visit. I highly recommend uh, the mountain. It's, it's beautiful. You bet. I've just, you know, I've always been a climber, kind of a mountaineer. And so I always dreamed of sort of uh, reaching those places, not very touched by man, where you could go and put your physical being to the test. I'm a little old for that nowadays, but of course, the ability to, uh, those boots that they now provide. I mean, you guys remember Star Trek V. This is going back probably 75 years now. But there was I've this. I've seen a lot of Star Trek movies since, so I can't possibly remember what was happening in Star Trek V. Right. Well, there's a scene at the beginning of William Shatner, Captain Kirk, he's climbing up this rock face. And he falls off the, the cliff, and of course, you're just watching this and you're in terror. But then Spock catches him because Spock has hover boots, which of course are now all the rage these days. But back then, of course, it was just pure science fiction. So that has just opened up a whole world of not just really courageous climbers like back in the day, but now climbers of all ages and, and experience types can now soar to the heights on Earth and, of course, soar to the heights on other planets as well. Mm. And, and real estate, of course, is, is taking advantage of all that. You've got resorts now well above 15,000 feet across Earth, which was never possible back in the day. So it's, it's just these sky communities are building up everywhere. And my answer to Joseph's question, which is I just think there's still so many opportunities, even though we're here in 2052, so many real estate opportunities on Earth um, yeah. to focus on rather than going inter intergalactic like a lot of investors are. Well, and thank you, Matt. You brought a couple of REITs out. Um, and in particular, I circled LUKS. looks really interesting. Obviously, Greenland, fertile ground for a lot more real estate, a lot more 
trusts a lot more dividends. Oh, yeah. And I know you love you, your dividends, Matt Argusinger, <laughs> and all you and your Million Acre fans. It's funny, uh, reflecting now on Million Acres, Matt, I've always loved the brand, and I know you have too. You were you were there. You participated in it from the start. But, I mean, maybe multi-million acres these days? Or did you, Have you guys thought about billion acres? I would say we're probably not at billion acres just yet, but I think you're right. Multi- a little bit acres? old school, million acres. Deca, deca million acres. Is that? I don't even. Is that the term? But maybe not catchy enough. No, I know. So I think we'll stick with million acres for at least the next couple decades, and then we'll hit. We'll probably hit billion acres. Well, thanks a lot for joining us this week on this special episode of Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you, David, and thank you, Chris. Well, that was fun, Chris. It was great to see Matt again. Um, well, let's let's move on. Rule Breaker mailbag item number six. I would say from off planet land sales. Well, actually, let's go to a much different place. Chris? Great question from Peter Andringa. He writes, hey, fools, I first heard David Gardner quote Arthur Schopenhauer in the teens. Here's the line, and I have it graffitied on my Metacrib. Talent hits a target no one else can hit. Genius hits a target no one else can see. Such a great line. To me, this is the quintessential reminder for the rule breaker investor to scour the world for genius. And most of the genius I've seen in my lifetime comes from CEOs who had a vision and or an invention that challenged the status quo, played David to Goliath, and upended the way business was done in their industries. And so often they seem silly, right? Netflix seemed stupid when they launched, asking you to mail in DVDs in order to be able to see your next movie. Three Meta seemed stupid when you had to mesh with the cloud to access your Metacrib instead of just pushing it out there on social media. And there are many other examples. How many people wanted to watch characters in the past before they could be those characters today? Immersion probably goes back to the Greeks, but they couldn't have known or really understood, lived other viewpoints in a way my kids take for granted today. I have learned so much from Avatar. I mean, haven't we all? All that said, to me, no company embodies true genius, as Schopenhauer says, hitting a target no one else could even see, than Babeltricity. I'm a huge fan of their CEO, Larry McCloskey, and what Babeltricity has done for every creature on this earth. I'm not embarrassed to admit that I shed a fanboy tear in front of my in-laws even at the YouTube <laughs> Bloomberg ceremony where McCloskey got named CEO of the decade. For me, that put the icing on the cake since I have owned chairs ever since Emily pounded the table in 2044. Back when this was a podcast, I loved it when you used to bring people on to tell their stories. You guys seem to be able to pull in anyone for an interview these days. Any chance we could hear directly from Babeltricity founder and CEO Larry McCloskey? Big fan either way. Uh, David, there's so much to unpack there. Um, uh, I, I will just add, maybe the the biggest no-brainer in the history of business awards that McCloskey would get CEO of the decade when you think about his vision and and what that company has done to literally change this planet. I, I agree. And, you know, we're coming out of the raging 40s where I, I don't think there's ever been a decade that had more different innovations, some truly horrible, uh, but some so amazing. And then for you to say, Chris, that it was it was a blowout. I don't think it was a unanimous vote. I'm not sure the voters released, but I think it was an obvious blowout. And I'm excited, obviously, because here in the studio, we have Larry McCloskey, 
founder and CEO of Babeltricity. And yes, as you mentioned, YouTube Bloomberg named him CEO of the decade. Mr. McCloskey, thank you so much for being with us on Rule Breaker Investing. David, Chris, thank you so much. It's it's been so wonderful to listen to this uh, entity that you have created over these years grow, and I'm I'm so happy to be a part of it. Thank you, thank you for having me on. Hey, thanks for doing an old school thing, a podcast. I think a lot of our younger listeners don't even know what that word means. But here we are, Mr. McCloskey, and let me just start. Can I call you, Larry? Yes, please do. Yep. So, Larry, one founder to another. How our ideas come to us, how they start, it's different for everyone. Tom and I take a lot of pride in what The Motley Fool's become today, and it started from the germ of, hey, maybe we could help people invest better in a world where people didn't really understand money. How did you frame up your initial insight that led to Babeltricity? Right. That's a good question. Most people know the story, It and I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that it was an accidental windfall, right, as a lot of things are, right, over the years. Uh, but the point is still there that I was focusing in an area. I'll just I'll go into the story a little bit. You know, we all know about the, the when things hit rock bottom in 2029, took a couple of years to get myself out of all that mess. But I ended up working in one of those drive-through, you know, those DNA injection facilities where you drive up and... and get your hair color switched or big muscles or something like that. Right. Sure. And, and I'm working there and I just felt like I was this pawn in a, in a giant system. And, and, and I started thinking, why aren't people using this for better? They're using it for vanity. Why aren't they using it to make the world a better place? And I started specifically, I'd done my thesis on the frontal lobe of the brain and why can't we change our DNA to use more of our brain? You know, they say we only use 10%. Now we know that's completely bogus, of course. Uh, so can we harness our DNA to increase our communication abilities, right? And so I would stay up late. I would be working. I would be doing a lot of experiments, but I ran out of funding. Well, fortunately, as we all know, I partnered with Wordle, and they gave me all of the funding that we needed to sort of crack the code, the genetic code, right? I was looking at the big picture of the genetic code. They told me to focus more in groups of five. And that really narrowed me in on the, the big breakthrough. And so I'm modifying the DNA and I hear this whimpering as I'm experimenting, right? This whimpering and I, I look around, there's no one in the room. Uh, and I realize it's, it's the dog, the, the guard dog for our, our facility and he, he's just, it's this, I, I couldn't hear a word, but it was a hint of like hunger or food. And I was like, whoa, this dog is, is I can hear this dog. Larry, let me pause you there. You know, I, I do want to mention, especially for our younger listeners, this occurred against a backdrop of, I would say, increasing amounts of empathy toward animals, especially pets, certainly. I mean, decades ago, all of a sudden, Pets became members of the family, so there was there was a greater affinity, that human to other mammal connection. And then I also want to mention, obviously, we all know what Beyond Meat has become now, and just how spectacular that industry has become. The quality of the food itself, synthetic, the taste, so much better than anything we could have thought. So I think I just, especially for our younger listeners, I just want to lay in some of that context because. What you discovered and what you did, I don't think could have happened outside of what I just described. Absolutely. And and looking back on old movies, even how animals are, are caricatures, like the, the Budweiser frogs, they're burping out things that say beer, you know, Budweiser. 
that's comical now that we know that frogs and, and amphibians have hopes and dreams, just like all of us. And if it weren't for the research that that our company, uh, and it is Babeltricity, by the way, and I'm sorry to correct you or whatever, but I, I do want to get that right. It's Babeltricity. Oh, my. Uh, it's no, no worries. I get it all the time. You, you, you haven't butchered it like a lot of people have. So, so, so don't worry about Although, that. Although, Chris, uh, side note, but my recollection, you kind of butchered a trade on Babeltricity. Oh, Chris, no. Uh, Mr. McCloskey, um, my respect for you is enormous. Um, uh, I, I will confess, uh, when I bought shares of Babeltricity, um, uh, I talk about leash, keeping certain stocks on a leash, which, you know, uh, uh, way back in the day, older folks like us remember, I mean, this is how um, pets, uh, particularly dogs, were dealt with, uh, usually on a leash. And uh, I just thought, look, I, I don't know about this. And it had nothing to do with you. Um, I've never owned pets in my life. And so to the extent that I had doubts about Babeltricity, it wasn't about you and your team. It was about the animals. And so when I got a 15% gain in that first six months, I thought, boy, it's not going to get better than this. And I sold all my shares. Wow. And, oh, no. and uh, you know, it's, it's, David, it's the classic mistake, right? We've heard this forever. Uh, what biggest mistake you made? Oh, I sold too early. That was the mistake. Yeah. Well, if you look back and quickly wrapping up the story, through the guard dog, learning that we could hear pets communicate with animals. It, I'm sorry to even use the word pet. Uh, that's so archaic, the, the concept of owning an animal, right? right. Uh, but uh, being able to communicate and, and coexist with animals and all the species on our planets, taking it to a whole fundamental level of a greater place than where we used to be, you know, 40, 50 years ago. But if you look back on the history of Babeltricity, there's so many points where people sold on all the things that happened, all the skeptics. Uh, I've been sued 23 times, wow. five of those by animals. And during each one of those times, our stock plummeted because people just didn't believe in me or the vision, even though we'd shown success after success in so many. We have billions of people on the planet eventually using our product. Uh, all it takes is a skeptic or two or one yep. bad story. A bad story comes out like a ferret explodes. And and we had nothing to do with that. But for some reason, they point the finger at us and and then we take a hit. But Larry, it's, that it's was a while like, ago. I don't know whether you had refined, I guess, Babeltricity's technology well enough. Did, were you able to capture the ferret's last words? Well, there was, I mean, there's a lot of background noise and screaming, but uh, it, it seemed it was mostly, you can do better. You can do better. And it was almost a little bit patronizing, like, really? This is what it's come down to. I, he was trying to use an app or something that wasn't compatible and iOS wasn't upgrade. I don't know. It's the, we all remember the story, right? It yeah. was everywhere. Yeah. Well, thank you oh, for sharing that. But you know, no, but like, but. Someone hearing that would laugh, you know, ferret exploding. But now it's it's a horrifying thing. It's like the Hindenburg or or just all these tragedies that have happened. And and it's so great that our society is in a place now where, you know, you take back anything in our history where we sort of comically treat it because we don't understand it. Disney movies. Oh, my God. Looking back at some of those Lion King. My God. I'm afraid to even tell my grandchildren that that exists. Wow. Yeah. Larry, we've seen over the decades the truly transformative businesses, um, obviously, Creek 
great opportunities for investors who are smart enough to take advantage of them, uh, but they also extend beyond themselves. There are ripple effects that a, a business can create. You think about Amazon at the early in this century. Um, when you think about the way Babeltricity um, has fostered global mammalian relations, are there any surprises to you at some of the ripple effect businesses that have popped up as a result of what you've created? Well, like like a lot of you know, whenever a t new technology comes out, the the first thing that seems to happen is is people exploiting that, and and that's a sh and that's a shame. Uh, game shows, for example, just just to name one thing. But uh, slowly over time, the the irony of the whole thing is that humans started treating humans better when the animals were the ones that sort of had to step in and say, look, you guys need to treat each other better. Yep. And so it, it, it was the companies, ironically, that reconnected humans to one another. And it was only where we had to step back and realize that we're all part of this together yeah. that, that those things could happen. Well, I just want to say for myself, Larry, I mean, first of all, Babel, sorry, Babeltricity, the, the company I didn't just open my eyes, but you think about looking back on human history now, and for thousands and thousands of years, humans only were talking to other humans. And so the reason that I'm obviously first all oh, very happy, I'm an early stage investor. I wish I wish you guys would have taken our Motley Fool Ventures investment at the VC level, but happy after your 79% bump on your first day as a public company, happy to have bought then and done so well since. But more than anything, I think it's the realization that there were millions of voices all around us that weren't human, that we were not listening to throughout all of recorded history until you, Larry McCloskey, followed your dream and brought us Babeltricity. That's right. That's right. And, and if you just flash back to a point in time 30, 40 years ago, and, and someone mentioned that, they would be laughed at that this would happen, right? Like, uh, multi-species communication, you'd be laughed out of the room. But you'd, you you could say that about all the other things that would have seemed ridiculous, that we can't regrow limbs, or uh, maybe we should sell Idaho to Ecuador. Well, we know how that worked out. I won't even go into the details of that. But that, there's, there's so many things that seem silly at the time, but if you step back and have an open mind to it. I remember I was having dinner with President Manning at the Yak Sherpa Accords of 45, and and he he just said to me, "You've done more for the world than than I think anyone that I've ever met." And that that was wow. I mean, how could I not be humbled by that, right? Well, Larry, thank you very much. First of all, for for this special appearance on Rule Breaker Investing, Chris. Should we? I, this was your question, Chris. So you should ask the closing question. Yeah, and and thank you again for your time. We want to be respectful. Um, uh, investing is all about the future. Um, you saw an opportunity that no one else did, and so uh, I and others uh, look to you and can't help but think, well, what what else does he see? So, uh, not that you have a crystal ball, but if you did, what when you look over the next twenty years, what do you see? Mm. I I think someday we could hope to be in a place where automated driving would work right like vehicles could yeah self-drive themselves i know right it's always 10 years away it's always 10 years away 
why can't we crack that? Well, that's that's the project that I've been working on now, and I, I, I mean, maybe I, sh- maybe I shouldn't have revealed that. Wow. Uh, but that's because I'm like, we got to get this right, you know. And now because now animals are involved, and another deer gets hit by a car, mm. and it makes national news because now you know you learn about the deer and what he was saying and his families and his thoughts, right? And so we have to get automated driving. To, to work. So that's that's my vision of that that will eventually happen. That's beautiful. Every creature has a story, but until Babeltricity showed up and Larry McCloskey, so many of those stories could never be told. Well, obviously you got a lot of fans listening, you have a lot of people who own a lot of your shares. Mr. McCloskey, we wish you the very best and the future of driving, it sounds like it's now. So we wish you best of luck with that as well. Thanks for joining Chris and me on this episode of Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks. Thanks, both of you. Uh, it's been an honor. Chris, I will not forget having Larry McCloskey on this show anytime soon. That was spectacular. Let's close it out. Rule Breaker mailbag item number seven. From Dolores DJ Johnson, who writes, Hey, guys, thank you for this episode I was really excited to see I could submit this message to the address that still works, rbi at fool.com, and that I could do it in time for this episode. What you don't know but may appreciate is that my entry was sent a few days ago from the bridge of the space carrier Audacity, where I served the U.S. Space Force as a tech ops ranger. Go Space Force. Anyway, my question is pretty simple. I saw ahead of time that you were going to call this episode the year the market skyrocketed. To which my reply was going to be, which year is that? Do you mean last year? Because in 2051, the market was only up 7.5%. Don't get me wrong. I like my up years like the next fool. But 2051 was actually below average. So guys, why skyrocket? And she signs it, Semper Supra. Awesome. Well, thank you for that, Dolores. And yeah, Chris and I discussed this with some intentionality a few weeks ago. So here's the the fun thought about why, for some of us, when you think about it, the market skyrocketed over the past year. DJ, you're absolutely right. Market was up 7.5%. That's a little bit below normal yearly averages. But with the Dow at 477,000, if you do the math, 7.5% gain last year was about 35,000 points up. And Chris and I were talking about this back when we used to do this podcast way back in the day, back in the 2020s. The Dow was at 35,000. The Dow was at 35,000 back in that era. And now last year, in a subpar market year, the Dow gained 35,000 thousand points. So skyrocket, Chris, it's kind of a relative term. It's kind of where you are in time that really makes it a skyrocket or not. So yeah, for those of us here in 2052, I mean, it was a decent year last year. As DJ said, I like my up ears like the next fool too. I, I do too, DJ. But let me say, if you were one generation ago talking to your kids, if they heard the Dow went up 35,000 last year, yeah, I think they'd call that a skyrocket. It's something that uh, Morgan Housel made a career out of writing about, and it's not particularly uh, sexy, but this is compounding in a nutshell. This is what happens. Um, 
it's such an astronomical number when you're staring up at 477,000 from down at 35,000. You look at it and you think, well, how, how could we possibly get to there? Well, basic compounding over time, that's how you get to 477,000, David. Yeah, so don't let people, sometimes your own self, head fake you out of the market, head fake you out of the power of compounding. Well, Chris, it was a lot of fun to do this with you again this week. It, it takes me back in the day. Remember the day the market crashed? I'm so glad that we shared the year the market skyrocketed together. We want to thank our special guests. Wow, some of them I hadn't seen seen for quite a while. Voices that I'm so glad those of us of today get to hear some voices from yesteryear. And Chris, most of all, thank you for you. I was so thrilled to join you in this. And uh, as you said, here we are at Dow 477,000. If you're younger, it doesn't seem like a skyrocket. But over time, that's what the market can do for investors. Chris Hill, say hello to the grandkids. Full on. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.